Well, to begin this morning, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and just hold your place there. We started last week uh, discussing this matter of baptism, baptism from a biblical point of view. And I decided to sort of divide up the first two lectures or classes um, on the subject of, number one, the meaning of baptism, and then number two, the mode of baptism. And so last week we looked uh, mostly at the meaning of baptism, and we looked together at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where it's very clear the Apostle Paul makes a comparison, a theological comparison between circumcision of the Old Testament and baptism of the New Testament, that there was something going on spiritually in the lives of Old Testament Israelites when God would, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, circumcise their hearts. That is basically language of regeneration. That is the secret spiritual work of God on the hearts of Old Testament saints by which they were saved. But you had in the Old Testament also the physical rite of circumcision, which pointed forward to that spiritual work of the circumcision of someone's hearts someone's heart. In the New Testament, uh, and this is Paul's point in Colossians chapter 2, baptism has replaced circumcision. So you have the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God is poured out. You have Jesus telling uh, Nicodemus that you must be born of water and the Spirit. And so in the New Covenant era, circumcision gives way to baptism. And there's a spiritual dimension of this because we speak about regeneration, the new birth, uh, spiritual renewal, being made a new creation in Christ by the Spirit of God. And so now physical baptism points to that. We're in a different covenant. Circumcision has given way to baptism. And we looked at various reasons for that, basically rooted in the fact that everything in the Old Testament seemed to be bloody. There was a lot of cutting There was a lot of blood, but now that Christ has come, we know Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, but that now Christ's blood has been shed, the final lamb of God, he said upon the cross of Calvary, it is finished. No more blood will be shed. So we have a cleaner, no pun intended, sacrament in the New Testament, namely water baptism, which essentially serves identically to the way that circumcision of the Old Testament did in terms of marking out God's people, in in terms of reminding us of God's promise that he will save a people for himself. In the Old Testament, he was cutting out a people for himself. To use New Testament language, he he is washing us anew. He is making us new creatures in Christ. We are born again by the Spirit of God. And of course, with that comes all sorts of massive implications, such as the fact that even as God promised to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, now we see in the new covenant, Matthew chapter 28, that we are to go into all of the world and baptize the nations. We are to apply the New Testament sacrament to not just ethnic Jews, but to all sorts of people, people from all sorts of nations who claim the name of Christ and profess the name of Christ. So there is much continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there is discontinuity. There's discontinuity and that the sign is different, but there is continuity in the fact that the salvation is the same. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation was not different in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, it's clear that Abraham was looking forward to the coming Messiah. We know that because of what Paul says in Galatians. Paul says that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel was preached to Abraham by God. Abraham was looking forward to the coming Messiah, the promised seed of Genesis chapter 3. His faith was in the coming Christ, in the promises of God that the Christ would come from his seed. 
And that's why Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad, John chapter 8. Abraham was looking in faith to Christ. And so even in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews is clear that Abraham was a stranger, and even that promised land of Canaan was only a figurative sort of emblem of the eternal heaven that Abraham was longing for and looking for and lived by faith for. So, so Abraham was looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham was saved by the same gospel we are saved by. The sacrament for Abraham was circumcision. Our sacrament is baptism because now we live after Christ, after he was crucified, after his blood was shed, after the finished work of Christ on the cross, and now with the day of Pentecost and the pouring down of the Holy Spirit to now massively reach the whole world with the gospel. So the meaning of circumcision is critical in understanding the meaning of baptism. And that's what we spoke about last week. This morning we want to talk about the mode of baptism. So we move from the meaning of baptism to the mode of baptism. What do I mean when I talk about the mode of baptism? Well, I'm still, and this is somewhat of a teaser, not talking about the timing of baptism. So we're not talking yet about whether or not you baptize an infant who was the child of another believer. We're simply talking about not the timing, not the when of baptism, but the how of baptism. What is the mode? What is the method? Is it permissible, according to the Bible, to sprinkle, to pour water on someone? We would call this effusion. Or... Is the most biblical position immersion? There are some people that believe the only biblical position is immersion. Is that valid? Is that a right way to think about it? Well, let's talk about that, the mode of baptism. What is the right way? Two simple points this morning, okay? First of all, I want to give to you the argument for sprinkling or the argument for pouring as is espoused by Presbyterians, those that believe in covenantal infant baptism. And then secondly, I will give to you the argument of immersion. That is the position that is held by Baptists. So number one, let's talk about the argument for sprinkling or the argument for pouring. You have your Bibles open, Acts chapter 1. Notice with me in verse 4, it says, while staying with them, this is speaking about Jesus. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Now, what was the promise of the Father that Jesus was going to send? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. And verse 5, Jesus makes a comparison. He says, for John baptized with water, but you, notice the language, will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is speaking about, and this is where you're going to have to just deprogram your mind for a moment, a sort of baptism that has nothing to do with water. This is a prophecy of a spirit baptism. Same word, baptism. It is a prophecy of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what happened. Notice in verse 8, Jesus says again, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, notice the language, has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is clearly Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. This is prior to Jesus' ascension. And Jesus, notice, is comparing John's baptism, verse 5, of water with this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is really a baptism of fire, Acts chapter 2. It's very interesting to me because if you want to argue for a certain mode, it seems to me just on the surface of it, in Acts chapter 1, immersion would not be the, the type of mode you would choose. Because the language of Acts 1.8 you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit is coming down from above. The Holy Spirit is being poured down. You're not being put into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is coming upon you. The Spirit is being poured down. In fact, Acts chapter 2, let's just look at it. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire. This is a baptism of fire. Appeared to them and, notice the language, rested on each one of them. This is coming from above, resting on each one of them. Verse 4, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Skip with me to verse number 17. Peter says, I want you to understand what is happening here was predicted in the Old Testament. Verse 17, a prophecy from the Old Testament. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will, notice the language, pour out my spirit. On all flesh, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall see dreams. Verse 18, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, notice the language again, I will pour out my spirit. It's a language of pouring from above. Verse 23, um, I'm sorry, verse 33 being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, speaking about Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, here it is again, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the language the Bible uses to describe the baptism of the Spirit, a baptism of fire, is that of pouring. It's not that of immersion. Such to me seems to be crystal clear. Remove, remove any book you might read on infant baptism. Let's just talk about what the Bible says. It seems to me if you want to argue for a mode, the most appropriate mode, at least at this point so far in the discussion, pouring is winning out. Sprinkling is winning out. If this is a choreography, if this is a, a reenacted drama, baptism, and we know that water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism, which we know that because we've already discussed that, then it seems to me that pouring or sprinkling is the preferable mode. But that's not all. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, you have to be able to connect these dots. Water baptism is symbolic of the work of the Spirit in changing a heart. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost, pouring out of the Spirit. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, notice with me in verse 1, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's speaking about the Old Testament Israelites when they were delivered from Egypt. Verse 2, and this is interesting language, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Notice that continuity. You have language of sacraments, baptism and drinking from Christ. That sacramental language that was true even in the Old Testament. But here is a type of baptism that also doesn't involve water, or at least involves very little water. It takes place where water happens to be in the parting of the waters. But notice it says all were baptized into Moses. So now we have another sort of baptism that really doesn't involve water. It doesn't say they were baptized into the sea. It says they're baptized into Moses. And then it says they were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea. But think about it for a moment. The Israelites were not the ones that got wet. They walked through on dry ground. The only people immersed in that episode were the Egyptians. They were immersed in God's judgment and were drowned. So I don't think Paul has any notion of immersion on his mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He does have baptism on his mind, and he's using baptism really separate from water to speak about a baptism into Moses. As if to say we are baptized into Moses, the Old Testament Israelites, excuse me, were baptized into Moses, he was their leader. So you have baptism of the Holy Spirit, doesn't have anything to do with water. You have baptism into Moses that doesn't have anything to do with water. So the idea of baptism 
has less to do, here's the argument, with immersion and has more to do with purification rites in the Old Testament. When we think about baptism, we need to think not so much of immersion, because there's all sorts of baptisms, baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism into Moses. We need to think, reorient our thinking and think about purification rites from the Old Testament. Baptism was not a New Testament phenomenon. I hope you know that. There were scores of Israelites who were baptized by John, and they didn't think anything strange about that. This wasn't some newfangled thing. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Very interesting passage because the author of Hebrews uses Old Testament language to make various comparisons. He speaks about the Old Testament. He says in verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place, that is of the tabernacle, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Was that not true in the Old Testament? Gifts and sacrifices offered, but nothing could ultimately purify one's conscience. That's why daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, for hundreds of years, sacrifices were offered. When Christ came, the final sacrifice, that cleanses our conscience forever. But the point of the author of Hebrews here is that those sacrifices offered couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper in the tabernacle. Now notice this verse 10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So there were various washings until the time of Reformation, likely a reference to John the Baptist at time of Reformation, the days of Jesus at time of Reformation, the establishment of the new covenant. Until then, until the days of John and the days of Jesus, there were various washings, regulations of the body. Now, in verse 10, the phrase various washings translates the Greek word baptisms. That's the word. It's the Greek baptismos, which is the noun form of the verb form baptizo, which means to baptize. So the baptisms of verse 10 refer to, listen to this, all kinds of modes of baptism. Not simply immersion, exclusively. That's why it's translated various washings. There are all sorts of baptisms. So if turned back with me to Leviticus chapter 14, because this is what is on the mind of the author of Hebrews, Leviticus chapter 14 speaks about laws for cleansing lepers. And if you notice with me just uh, in verse 6, it says that, well, verse 5 says, the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds that are brought. And verse 6 says, the priest shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall, notice the language, sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. And then he can pronounce the poor fellow clean. The word dip there in verse 6, in the Old Testament um, Greek version, the Septuagint, it is the Greek word bapto, which is closely related to baptizo. So the word that is translated dip is the word we usually use for baptism, except it's translated dip. And verse 6 says that the, the dipping of one bird in the blood of another who has been dead results in a cleansing. Now, if you dip one bird in the blood of another of equal size, that is not a full immersion. You're not going to have a bucket full of blood from one small little bird that you can then dip a live bird in fully and immerse it. This isn't immersion. It's dipping. It's just getting blood on it. And then verse 7 uses the language of sprinkling seven times the leper. If you go with me to verse 16, you can see that the sort of dipping that is in mind is not immersion. Verse 15 says, the priest shall take some of the log of oil, pour it into the palm of his own left hand. So there's oil in the palm of his hand. Verse 16 says, and then he is to dip, same word, bapto, dip his right finger 
in the oil that is in his left hand and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. Now, I don't know what kind of magician you might be, but you try to pour oil in your hand, you're not going to get that much oil in your hand to be able to fully immerse your entire finger. The point is not a full immersion. The point is put some oil in your hand, dip your finger, sprinkle with what's on there. This is actually minimal water that is being spoken about. These are the various washings and cleansing rites of the Old Testament. And immersion has not even been mentioned yet. By the way, the point of verse or Leviticus 14 is not mode, it's purification. The Bible never emphasizes mode when it comes to cleansing. It always emphasizes purifi- purification. Uh, maybe one illustration will do well. As parents, there are times that you could care less what method your children select in terms of getting clean. Do they take a bath? Do they get a shower? I don't think you really care so long as they are clean. The point is, get clean. The point is not some prescribed technical method that is better than another. In fact, the Bible is clear that there is flexibility with respect to these Old Testament purification rites. Turn with me to um, Numbers, just the very next book. We get some data on this. Numbers chapter 19, again, laws of purification And uh, just notice the the different various washings and purification rites. They're they're very flexible in Scripture. Verse 13, for example, whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, so we're talking about cleansing, purification rites. The Bible says he defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity, listen to this, was not thrown on him. Some translations say sprinkle on him, and therefore he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. So it's the language of throwing water or sprinkling water. Skip down to verse 18. A clean person shall take hyssop. Here's the language again. Dip it in the water. Dip it in the water. And sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on all persons who were there Whoever touched the bone, the slain, the dead, or the grave. So now you have verse 13, water thrown on someone. You have verse 18, water, something dipped, hyssop, then sprinkled. Verse 19, on the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day, on the seventh day. Then on the seventh day he shall cleanse him and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in the water. There we go. At evening he shall be clean. It's not until verse 19 that there's any discussion of immersion or full bathing or full washing. There's a lot of sprinkling. There's a lot of throwing on of water. It's not until verse 19 that you could even make the argument that there is immersion in Old Testament purification rites, and it's really not the sort of immersion we think of. It's, it's a bath. It's immersing yourself in a tub of water, so to speak. So all of these terms seem to be appropriate for Old Testament cleansing. Where do you think John's baptism came from? He didn't make it up. It came from Numbers. It came from Leviticus. Now let me just say this. There is a difference between what we might call exclusive immersionists or exclusive immersionism. That is the idea, and there are some people that hold to this, the only type of legitimate baptism is immersion. Every other form is unbiblical. I do not hold to that position. I think that's a wrong position, the exclusive immersionism position. But I'm okay with inclusive immersionism. In other words, I don't think immersion is unbiblical. It wasn't unbiblical in the Old Testament. Why would we assume it's unbiblical today? The point isn't the mode anyway. The point is just cleansing, whether you pour, sprinkle, throw water on, splash someone, or dunk them fully in. So I would be an inclusive immersionist at the very minimum to say that I don't think the only form of biblical baptism is exclusive immersion. Now again, we're not talking about the timing of baptism. We're not talking about about who we're applying it to. We're talking about how we apply it. How we apply it. 
the language of Old Testament prophesying regarding the coming of the new covenant also uses language of sprinkling. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52 speaks about Christ being pierced for our transgressions and what happens after he's pierced or crucified. Verse 15, the day of Pentecost. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, that which they have not heard they understand. That's the day of Pentecost, right? Understanding different languages, the Spirit of God being poured out. Here, verse 15, the language of sprinkling many nations. That's the day of Pentecost. Now, this is not an explicit prophecy of baptism, water baptism, but it is an explicit prophecy of Holy Spirit baptism, and we've already established the fact that water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism, the work of the Spirit on the heart. That's what water baptism symbolizes. And the language here of Holy Spirit baptism is sprinkling. So wouldn't it seem natural that the method or physical rite of water baptism could at least possibly be sprinkling? I think it makes sense. Um, or what about Ezekiel chapter 36? Again, a prophecy of the new covenant. Therefore says God to the house of Israel, verse 22, the Lord God is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries. I'll bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. It's exactly what happened to ethnic Jews during the days of Christ coming from their pagan lands coming to Jerusalem they had clean water sprinkled on them symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit this is language of regeneration and it's using sprinkling to describe that work of the Spirit of God we could go to a number of other Old Testament passages that reiterate this. Joel chapter 2, here's another one, verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will, listen to the language, pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is what Peter quoted in Acts 2. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Old men dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. This is Joel 2, 28 and 29. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. So once the new covenant arrived, the New Testament began describing the cleansing of Christ's blood in language of that of pouring or sprinkling. So there's, there's more language of pouring and sprinkling. Uh, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28. The night Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, for this is my blood of the covenant. Just listen to the language. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood was poured out. The Spirit was poured out. What cleanses us? Christ's blood. It was poured out. Or Mark chapter 14 and uh, verse 24 he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Mark has the same language. Language of pouring. What about Luke chapter 22 in verse 20? Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out. It's not language of immersion. It's language of pouring. So just try to connect this for a moment. We enter the new covenant only through the poured out blood of Christ. Spiritually speaking. 
Physically speaking, we enter the new covenant through baptism. So would not sprinkling or pouring be a legitimate method? 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's think about this deeper. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He writes to those elect exiles of the dispersion who are elect, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. We've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ that has been poured out. We've been sprinkled with the blood of of Christ. The Bible is not afraid to use the language of sprinkling. Or what about Hebrews 12:24? It speaks about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. Again, the sprinkling of our Lord's blood. That's the language that is used. Or Hebrews says this, Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, sprinkled with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I mean, he's comparing the sprinkling of the blood in the Old Testament with the sprinkling of Christ's blood on our consciences, on our hearts. This is why John says this. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and listen to this, the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Just as the priest cleansed the tabernacle with blood by sprinkling, we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We too have been cleansed by Christ. And just turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, because in verse 22, the author of Hebrews even connects spiritual cleansing with physical washing. Uses language here of baptism. Verse 22, Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Notice this. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, what could he possibly be speaking about when he speaks about bodies washed with pure water if he's not talking about baptism? And yet he says, what's most important is that our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience with the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ sprinkles clean our conscience. And then we have our bodies washed with pure water. That's baptism. Baptism is just a sign of the sprinkling of God's blood on our hearts. It's very difficult for me to read a verse like that and then tell a Presbyterian you're wrong for sprinkling someone. It's the language that is used. It's biblical language. In fact, this is how close the Bible gets to speaking about the importance of baptism. Listen to this verse in Acts. It's Acts chapter 22. It's when Paul converts. It's the words of Ananias. And he says to Paul, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. We know that physical baptism does not wash away our sins, but it symbolizes the washing away of sins. And the language scripture uses is that of sprinkling, that of pouring, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the sprinkling of Christ's blood on our conscience, which is then symbolized with baptism. It seems very legitimate to make the logical connection that mode is not the most important thing. But if you're going to emphasize mode, maybe let's talk about sprinkling and pouring. 
because that's the sort of language the Bible uses. Maybe just a couple more ideas. In Acts chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius and his company, uh, verse 47 speaks about, well, it's a question, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So this is after Pentecost. The Spirit of God has come down on uh, Cornelius and his company here. And it says, uh, verse 45, believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. They were hearing them speak in tongues, extolling God, and Peter declared, can anything withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? In other words, Peter says, this is the exact same thing that happened on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured down. These people are saved. They have the Spirit of God. What prevents us from baptizing them? What prevents us from baptizing them? Spirit fell down. Peter commands they be baptized with water. What is he doing? He's connecting water baptism with spirit baptism. And what did we say at the beginning? Acts 1.4. Jesus com- compared John's baptism with water or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was a pouring down from above. That's the exact comparison Jesus uses to describe John's baptism. We aren't to be too quick to assume John the Baptist immersed Israelites. Because if the comparison Jesus is making between John's baptism and the pouring out of the Spirit, then it seems to me maybe water was poured on those John the Baptist baptized. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, Paul defends what happens, his applying water baptism to these people that were converted. In Acts chapter 11, verse 15, Paul says, I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Just at the beginning, I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That is very interesting to me. Paul says, as I spoke, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And Paul says, as that happened, I automatically remember the word of the Lord, Acts 1-5, where Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's making the connection that Jesus predicts the Spirit baptism. And what does he do immediately after that? He says, these people need to be baptized by water as a sign of the work of the Spirit. So, of course, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 39, Peter says, This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. What promise? Repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is promised for the children of these believers. And water baptism is clearly connected with that. So the argument for sprinkling or pouring is derived from the language of Old Testament purification cleansing rites, which was not exclusively immersions. They were various washings, sprinkling, pouring, dipping, splashing throwing. Mode was never the emphasis, and so the argument of Presbyterians or covenantal infant baptizers is the fact that baptism has a history, and the history is Old Testament purification rites. So sprinkling or pouring is not only appropriate, but perhaps even preferable because of the language of the sprinkling of Christ's blood cleansing our consciences. Now I have just five minutes left And I told you I was going to give you the argument for immersion as well. So you've heard the argument for pouring or sprinkling, talking about the mode of baptism. Now let's talk about the argument for immersion. Five minutes is all I need. Because the argument is very simple. Here's the argument. The Greek word for baptized always means to dip or immerse or to plunge. 
you get a Greek lexicon, you will find that the primary definition of baptizo means to immerse. But if I can show you one or two places where that's not the case, where the word baptizo is used to describe dipping, where that word is used in the context where sprinkling is taking place, then that whole argument falls. And I feel like I've already done that. The word baptizo does not always mean immerse. Yeah, you can look it up in a Greek lexicon, and that's the primary definition. But let me ask you a question. When someone says, I'm going to go take a bath, does that mean they're going to take a shower? Or does it mean they're going to have a sponge bath? See, there, there, there is a history of word usage. If I say that I'm going to throw away this piece of paper, there's one of two ways I can do that. I can walk down from here and walk out to the trash can and drop it in. Or Chris can go get the trash can and hold it up and I can wad the paper up and throw it in and play basketball. Either way, I'm throwing away a piece of paper. Whether I'm literally doing it or not, I'm throwing it away. Not all the times in the Bible where the word baptize is used is it speaking about immersion. We already saw Acts chapter 2, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What was that? Pouring down. That's the language that is used. The Spirit was poured down. Matthew 26 is another one. When Jesus says the one who's going to betray me will, will dip. Well, just turn there. Turn, turn, turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 23. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Hmm. He who baptizes his hand. That's what it says. I doubt that he baptized his entire hand. If you did that at a party... With chips and salsa, you'd probably be kicked out. I mean, what are we talking about here? Is the point to be so literalistic that you have to cling to the water's got to fully cover an individual? Is that really the point of Scripture? It doesn't seem to even be the point of the word baptizo. So how could that be the point of baptism? You say, well, what about Romans chapter 6? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Turn to Romans 6. What do we read in verse 3? Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There you have it. Immersion is the primary means because here are the languages we've been Baptized with Christ in death and we've been raised to walk a new life. And what better imagery than this? Well, wait a second. Christ wasn't buried in the ground. He was enclosed in a tomb. So the imagery doesn't work of this. He was entombed. He was enclosed. Besides the fact that Romans 6 is speaking about spirit baptism. We are spiritually baptized into Christ just as Old Testament Israel was spiritually baptized into Moses. Israel was one with Moses. He was their mediator. We are one with Christ. He is our mediator. This is metaphorical baptism. It has nothing to do with immersion, going down and coming up out of water. Nothing whatsoever to do with that. In fact, there's a warning. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 20, they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through, what does it say? Water. 
Okay, so we got water on our minds. Now verse 21, next word is baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? Well, the type of thing that happened with Noah and the flood and the water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Old Testament ceremonial washings are in mind. Peter is clear. Peter is clear. Water does not remove the dirty sin of our bodies. The point is not the water. Salvation is never because of baptism. Spirit baptism saves. By the way, if we want to compare Noah and the flood to baptism, let's think about this. The only people that got wet were those judged. Noah's ark was not immersed. That's the point. It was above the water. So I don't see how anyone can make any connection. 1 Peter 3.21 to argue for immersion. Seems to me the exact opposite is the case. Just like the example in 1 Corinthians 10. The only ones immersed and drowned were the Egyptians. The passage we'll look at this morning, Mark 9 verse 42, says that if you make one of Christ's little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be drowned into the sea. All this talk about water and immersion. and When I look at the Bible and I read the Bible, those are words of judgment. Those are not words of blessing. Besides this fact, Galatians 3.27 says we are to put Christ on. It's the metaphorical language of clothing. So if one wants to argue Romans chapter 6 that we're baptized into Christ and that is a picture of immersion, what do you do with Galatians 3.27 which says we put on Christ? That's language of putting clothes on. That's not immersion language. So you can use metaphors of Scripture that are to be interpreted literally but you can use them in a literalistic way that moves away from the primary meaning. The primary point of baptism is not immersion. It's that the Spirit of God washes and cleans, cleanses hearts sovereignly. Lexicons are records of the historical usages of words. But baptizo does not always mean immerse. Not in classical Greek, not in Judaic Greek, that is the Greek Septuagint, not in New Testament Greek, none of that. One final thing I would say. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We'll close with this. This is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip runs alongside of him. He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah about the good news about Christ. Verse 36 says, As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, many immersionists will say they had to stop there because he had to be immersed. There had to be a big enough body of water. Okay, that's possible. It's possible. But then they say this. He commanded the chariot to stop. They both, listen to this, prepositional phrase, went down into the water. See, there you go. They both went down into the water because he had to immerse the eunuch. But wait a second. That's not what it says. It says they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And then he baptized him. So the going down into the water wasn't talking about a plunging. Because if that was the case, then both were plunged because it says both went down into the water. No, it's just speaking about the fact that they walked down into that particular body of water. How, how deep it was, we don't know. But they walked down to it, down into it. 
He could have just as well sprinkled him or poured water over his head. And then verse 39 says, they both came up out of the water. They both went in, they both came out. So unless both were immersed, this cannot be an argument for immersion. I've almost been fully immersed baptizing someone. It can happen. But I don't think that's what happened here. How, how was the eunuch baptized? We don't know. But there is a clue. There is a clue. The eunuch was reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. It's written there in verse 32 and verse 33. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, opens not his mouth, humiliation, justice was denied him, on and on, speaking about the suffering Messiah. Where is that found? It's found in Isaiah chapter 52, the end of it. And what, actually Isaiah 53, excuse me, the first seven verses. What comes right before that? A verse that we've already quoted today, Isaiah 52, 15, which talks about God sprinkling the nations clean. Is it possible that the eunuch understood his need for baptism by reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, trusting in Christ as a Savior, and seeing the language of sprinkling? I don't know. I would say it's at least possible perhaps even probable. So where does that leave the argument for immersion? At a minimum, you can't be an exclusive immersionist. I mean, you can be, and I'll still love you, but I don't think the Bible teaches that. What are the two qualifications for a biblical baptism? It's very simple. Let's not complicate this. You don't have to have a huge tank to dunk them in. You don't have to fully immerse them. You don't have to use holy water. There's no such thing. Here are the two qualifications. There's only two. Use water and do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus commands. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you do it with water and you do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it is a biblical baptism, period. Now, next week, we're going to look at is it legitimate to baptize the infant of a believing parent? And as always, we will look at Scripture to find our answer for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for your people that are so attentive and hungry for truth. Bless us now as we have these truths sealed to our hearts by your blessed Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what our spiritual eyes often fail to see and understand. Bless us with your grace and your goodness as we seek to honor you both in heart and mind. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.